The revolution may not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. I'm your host, Brittany Gallagher. We're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side. And maybe a bit on how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this episode, I'm joined by Peter Eckersley for a series called Conversations on AI. Peter is the Director of Research at the Partnership on AI, and before that, he was the Chief Computer Scientist at the EFF, where he helped launch privacy-protecting products like Privacy Badger, Let's Encrypt, and much more. In the later part of the show, we'll talk about how you can better protect yourself online using unique passphrases and password managers with Roy Natian. Everything you do is to make life harder for the bad guys. But first, I'll be joined by contributor Joanna Miller, who covers technology from a different perspective in a segment called A View from the Outside. Here's more about A View from the Outside from Joanna herself. I moved to San Francisco about eight years ago, and this was at the height of the second tech boom. And I wasn't working at a tech company, but I was surrounded by people who were talking about raising money and startups and new products that they were working on and machine learning. And they were all terms and things that I had actually never heard before. And I felt like I got a baptism by fire. And about five years into living in San Francisco, I decided to go and work at a tech company, not in a technical field, but supporting the organization internally. And again, just got to see some of the inner workings of how tech companies think about how their products are impacting the world, who are the people actually creating these products, and what they think about what's important to them. And also a lot of conversations about how there's a lack of diversity in technology and how that lack of diversity, especially when we're thinking about products that touch our lives, every day, even when we're sleeping, can sometimes have a profound impact on how we go through the world. That combined with my interest in, I would say, nosiness about life and about people and what they think and how they live made me very curious about getting the opportunity to interview people deeply about how they see tech shaping their lives, what themes and stories within tech are impactful to them, especially since these are voices that we don't get to hear from that often. A View from the Outside is primarily centered on interviewing underrepresented groups in technology, women, minorities, the LGBTQIA community, and anyone else who feels like their story maybe is not told as fully as they would like. I'm really excited to have this opportunity to dig deep into what technology really means in my life today and hopefully in a way that resonates with you as well. In this episode, I'll be joined by Tan Wee Hoon, a Malaysian entrepreneur working in Vietnam and founder of Alley 51, a venture fund in Vietnam. We'll be talking about what brave new world ideas are and bringing mindfulness into entrepreneurship. But first, here's Tan Wee Hoon in her own words. I would describe as myself as a person who's always had this deep yearning to make a difference, a change in the world, and not knowing a clarity of how exactly, and that has actually given me meaning in life. Currently, what the life trajectory has brought me to, from studying engineering, which I didn't know why I studied chemical engineering, just because my Asian parents think that engineering degree would actually give me a better secure job, to suddenly finding me actually doing marketing 
and then suddenly going to Vietnam because I'm a Malaysian, starting an agency there, and then also going into various kinds of investment and finding myself in all these different business world. Currently, I've exited all of my business except one, which I just founded about two years ago. It's called Ali51. It is a technology venture builder. Basically, what we do is we are all about venture building for impact or for social good. And we believe that technology can be wielded also for the good. How would you describe a Brave New World idea? To me, it is an idea that, I don't want to just use the word disrupt, but it's basically just looking at things differently, doing things completely differently, just overturning the systems. And most startups, they might start in a very small, singular space. So just to give an example of even what we're trying to do in LA51, Vulcan Augmetics is actually a prosthetics company, a robotic prosthetics. And we do realize, yes, in Vietnam probably it's not going to be as easy to get biomedical engineering talents as compared to here, or even funding or even academics, right? So we thought about it and, okay, how can we relook at this space differently? And what we are doing right now is to actually attach prosthetics with jobs. We are creating modular hands that has to do with outperforming a certain task because the whole point is we cannot replicate this perfect hand. It's almost impossible. It's super expensive and no one in Vietnam is going to be able to afford it. So why replicate that, right? Instead, what we could do is to make it better than the hand at a certain job. So, for example, we have a waitressing module, and this is attached to, let's say, a group of coffee chains that we work with. What happens with a disabled people? They come to us, we give them trainings, especially from emotional point of view too, to how to use the product, and then they're given a module for waitressing. So there's this tray where they can carry more cups and more plates than an ordinary hand can, and they just pluck it in when they, they need to and use How do you integrate mindfulness practices and work with founders on making their brands more human? So one of the things that we do is, as a venture builder, we try to build a community for all the entrepreneurs that we work with. And we have this circling exercise that we do, which is to start with meditation, and then we go into a checking in of our bodies and how we feel, whether it's something from personal or even professionally, how stress. So... What I try to do is to really hold space for people to go deeper into really being authentic with their emotions. And we've been actually, yeah, making more and more progress. And for a country in like Vietnam, right, in Asia, it, it's hard for people to like fully express themselves. So I think that has changed a lot of the dynamics, especially in entrepreneurship, where we always need to portray that perfectness or that success, even among your colleagues. And the second thing that I've done was to have, instead of a night of achievement for our review, we actually turn it into an epic struggle night. So instead of celebrating the success, which of course we could do that at the end, we instead celebrated all the epic struggles that everyone had because they actually are even more worth of remembering sometimes. Because if you really think back of all the things, right, especially in the company, we don't remember like first year we achieved 
like how much millions, right? You don't remember the numbers, but you remember that night where you and your colleague was plowing through things in the office till last minute, trying to get this PowerPoint so that you can bring it over to the investor the next day. And just feeling so great after the presentation. Whether or not the investor said yes, it wasn't even that important. But it was that epic struggle of people just coming together and doing things. And wow, there was I think that was such an amazing thing to do because everyone was sharing their heart out. There were tears. There was so much of understanding and empathy of each other. Is there any advice you'd like to share with Western-based entrepreneurs and people in tech? about what it's like to be an entrepreneur coming from Southeast Asia? There is this huge opportunity for all of us, and it's already happening actually, but for all of us to really look at third world problems right now. But if I would actually to flip it over to, in fact, the third world or the developing emerging world has even more opportunity for experimentation because systems there are not rigid yet they are actually still also developing and emerging. So I do believe that a country like Vietnam is one of the best test bait for what's emerging in the world. What's a brave new world idea you'd like to seed? I've always dreamt about building a moonshot R&D lab somewhere, maybe in the hills, near where the people who need it are, like right next to all this underserved farmers, like right next to them so that we can always go out and just test it out with them or even R&D together. Just really building that whole community of tech, conscious practice, minimalist living, like all together, like really solving or even dissolving the problems that we see. Is there a movement that's being called forth right now? I have this thinking that actually we need to transform startups into movements because of the unhealthiness of how startup is structured and it's not going to allow real change because it's still stuck in a kind of system. But if we actually make it into movements and I'm just seeing how this connect with my 10 years in advertising and I think that that's slowly coming out as a piece. So then if I mirror that, if startups are movements, so it's allowed to just brew by itself, there is no pressure of I need to grow to a certain size A movement can be just very small, 100 people or even less, 10 people even. Or it can be really big because it's needed. It grows like a fish in a tank. It grows as per the size it's supposed to. So when it grows and we need much more economical structure, that's where I think business needs to actually be relooked at as conscious communities instead of businesses. So movements will slowly turn into just conscious communities where we can practice things like generative ownership, where everybody has a stake in what they believe in, and we build that community slash business together. I think that will change the whole game of how we are doing things in this sector. That was Joanna Miller from A View From The Outside, joined by Tan Hui Hoon, a Malaysian entrepreneur in Vietnam. In this next segment, Conversations on AI, I'm joined by Peter Eckersley, the Director of Research at the Partnership on AI, explaining how artificial intelligence learns. But first, here's more about the Partnership on AI. 
My name is Peter Eckersley. I'm the Director of Research at the Partnership on AI, an organization here in San Francisco, but created by a global coalition of the major technology companies, the major AI research labs within those companies and at universities, civil society organizations, uh, whether that's the ACLU or Amnesty International, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or AI-specific organizations like AI Now, Data and Society, the Future of Life Institute, the Future of Humanity Institute. All of those organizations created PAI to pose and answer the hard questions about the relationship between humanity and artificial intelligence. And I got the fun and slightly impossible job of building the research organization to help answer those questions. How does artificial intelligence work? One of the ways in which machine learning, artificial intelligence works is it's called supervised learning. And supervised learning, uh, you actually see parents doing a lot of this. If, if you look at a young kid, especially reading a book, you get a, a class in supervised learning. That's where there are lots of examples presented. And it's like, this is a cat. This is a dog. This is a cat and a dog. This is another cat that looks different. This is a mouse. This is a blue sky. These are trees. So in supervised learning, you have a data set which might be, for instance, a lot of photographs or a lot of audio files or a lot of documents, but suppose it's photographs. And then you have labels placed on those photographs and the labels are, oh, this is a tree in this part of this photograph. This is a cat in this part of this photograph. This is somehow a tree and a cat at the same time, uh, if it's a cat dressed up as a tree. And in supervised machine learning with data sets of enough examples, tens of thousands or more of these labeled photographs, these particular types of neural networks, convolutional neural networks, able to learn to recognize those images better than humans are able to. And that's pretty impressive. And the interesting step that it sort of steps over, if you're going to have tens of thousands of examples of cats and of trees and of mice, where do you get all those photographs from? Well, often somewhere on the internet. And how did you know in the first instance, that it was a cat or a tree or a mouse. And that's where labeling work comes in. Often that work is performed via services like Amazon's Mechanical Turk. And that's a, a service that Amazon offers where they pay people who work from home all over the world, often for really quite low rates. Shocking, it's Amazon. Well, you know, in Amazon's defense, people choose to do this work at those prices. And sometimes that looks a little troubling. In other cases, it's because situationally, that's actually quite good for people. I don't mean to, to say that Mechanical Tucker is the only example of this either. There are a number of these labeling services. But those workers do work really quickly because that's their incentive to make quick judgment calls about what's in the photograph and not to stop and think carefully about like what is actually going on in each of these photos. And it may be that as the field of machine learning matures, we want to do more data sets that are labeled more carefully with both more quality control and, you know, necessarily higher rates of pay for the people doing that work, both for reasons of social justice, but also so that we understand what it is that's being taught or trained mm -hmm. to these Right, because the algorithms are only as good as their data they're being trained on. The reason people don't do this all the time is it, it does cost more, right? If you're a grad student trying to finish your PhD, you don't have the budget to go and hire half a dozen people to sit around and carefully... Label your data. Yeah. The way things are at the moment is for understandable reasons, but as the field matures, we may want to find ways to do this more thoughtfully and ensure there's, there's funding and status for the people who are setting out to label the data. How do we deal with training sets that seem to be unjust? We are 
way ahead of ourselves in the sense that we have machine learning systems that have fully learned on an enormous scale from profoundly unjust data. And the example of Microsoft Tay, the chatbot on Twitter that learned to repeat racist things that have been tweeted at it is one example. But the recent progress that's been made in language models where these neural networks learn to say things, finish documents, or, you know, you can give them a prompt and they'll continue writing the document from where the prompt left off. These very impressive language models are produced by ingesting millions of documents from the internet and just training on the patterns in all those documents, learning to replicate the patterns. And that means that they replicate everything on the internet, everything that's glorious, everything that's poetic, everything that's insightful, and everything that's kind of malicious and toxic is wrapped up in this giant neural network. And so in that sense, it has internalized all of the trauma and hostility that you find in corners of the internet. Uh, We haven't been able to train or teach those neural networks to tell the difference. People are trying. There are papers being published quite a number this year that explore, well, what if you label the data in different ways? What if you augment the training process? What if you do some kind of post-correction? But as a practical matter, this is not a solved problem. We don't know how to make a really impressive language model. Okay, so where are we now with language models? What you start getting out is models that have some ability to hold a narrative. Every sentence they they produce makes sense. And you get some sense that the document is starting to say things. It's alive? It's not quite, but it's starting to be. Is it a document version of the Uncanny Valley? That's absolutely yes. We're well and truly into that Uncanny Valley territory. There was a paper I saw recently that started to probe, well, do these language models know things? And the answer was, Yes, you can extract some amount of structured, formal, logical predicates. It knows that mango is a fruit. And it's very odd that you can learn that just from a lot of language and never having actually seen a mango or seen the world at all. Now, one of these particular models from Salesforce called Control or CTRL, they spell it, has not just the language model, but also some kind of control variables inside it that let you maybe say, well, I want the next sentence to be a question or I want the next sentence to be a statement, an assertion of knowledge or that type of control is a step towards being able to say, oh, I want to recognize when a sentence is an insult, for instance, Mm -hmm. and then I want to be able to control whether the model produces an insult because having this type of awareness or controllability, one or the other inside the model, is an essential ingredient for asking ourselves, well, how do we parent such a system responsibly? How do we teach it that certain types of speech are not acceptable in certain contexts or not acceptable at all, that certain beliefs are unfounded, even though they may be widely repeated on the internet? That was Peter Eckersley, the Director of Research at the Partnership on AI, explaining how artificial intelligence learns. You can find out more about what the Partnership on AI is up to at partnershiponai.org. From training artificial intelligences to, well, protecting yourself online, in our final segment, I'm joined by Roy Natian, who focuses on human-centered design and how that applies to digital security. Here we'll be discussing how passwords are, well, the worst, 
but really there's no way around them and there are some ways to make them better. What's a good password? It's actually pretty straightforward. Good password is comprised of two things. One, it's long with a variety of characters, so about 20 characters or more, and it's also unique. So you should never reuse a password. Every website or service that you use should have a different unique password. Okay, so I use hundreds of different websites. So you're saying I have to have a different password for every single one? Why is that? Well, I'll illustrate this with a story. In March of uh, this year, my girlfriend sent me a text. She told me her Airbnb account was compromised. Someone was using it to reserve properties in her name. And it took me a little while, but I figured out what went wrong. Back in early 2018, my fitness pal, a uh, popular fitness app, suffered a data breach and it took several months, but that information was then sold on the dark web in early 2019. And that information was later used to test her username and password across a variety of popular websites until finally there was a hit and these bad actors, the bad guys, were able to access her Airbnb account. It almost feels like nothing is secure. <laughs> well, yeah, that's actually true. There's no such thing as a 100% secure system. That's not something that can be guaranteed, especially when so much of our digital lives is not in our dark control. So this illustrates a good point of, of ways I can be more secure, one of which is obviously, like you alluded to in the beginning, have a long complex password and, and always have it unique. So if they get access to your password through some data breach, you'll never be able to find my password for my bank because my Gmail password was different, right? Right, exactly. There are a bunch of things you can do to be more secure and probably one of the lowest hanging fruits is having a unique password on every website. Because once a data breach happens, you'll then know for sure that it's only confined to that breach and your other accounts for all the other websites, especially your financial sites and banking are secure. So when it comes to security, your goal should not be to be 100% secure, but to mitigate security risks. And you can do that in a variety of ways. But the, the thing to keep in mind is everything you do is to make life harder for the bad guys. You want to make it so hard that the cost for the bad guys to accomplish the goal, which, you know, stealing information, is more expensive than the value of the information they're trying to steal from you. So most of us aren't heads of state or run huge companies or celebrities. So we're not the direct target for cyber crimes. We are, however, susceptible to what are called ambient attacks. So this is the digital equivalent of someone walking down a neighborhood and trying every front door at each home. Sooner or later, you're going to reach a door that's been left unlocked. Let's all get better at keeping our digital front door locked. But passwords are the worst. They're hard to remember. How do I come up with a strong, unique password that I can remember? Again, keep in mind, long password is good and make sure they're unique. And the way you do that is you use something that's called a password manager. So instead of using your mind and all your valuable brain computing power on such a mundane and awful task as remembering unique passwords that are strong, have an app do it for you. So you mean I shouldn't try to remember ampersand capital A six T star four five capital H B X? Yeah, our brains are not built to remember random strings of digits. But we still need to use passwords and we still don't make sure they're unique, right? But I still need a password for my password manager. <laughs> yeah, you still need a password for your password manager. How do you do that? I'd like to shift people away from the word password and think in terms of passphrases. What I mean by this is instead of using a word, like a lot of people use a word and a number or a name and a date afterwards, those are awful passwords. Instead of using weak passwords like that or random strings, if there's a password you need to remember, use a passphrase. And what I mean by that is use a full sentence as a password. So complete with capitalization and punctuation marks. 
That makes a really good password. It's easy to remember. It's really long and you're using a variety of characters. Right. So you would use passphrases for logging into your computer or to your password manager, which you mentioned password manager earlier. Can you explain in a bit more detail what those are? Password manager is an app that can be on your phone and also on your computer that remembers your passwords for you. And on top of that, it can also autofill all your passwords for you. So all you have to do is you just log in with your unique passphrase. And then once you do that, it unlocks your password manager. And then either in your browser or on your phone or on a desktop app, it'll have all your passwords in an organized list for you. They generally all have an autofill button. So you just click that and then your username and password gets filled on websites and on your phone and you can log in. Me personally, I have hundreds of passwords. I only know two of them, one for logging into my laptop and one for unlocking my password manager. And then my password manager does the rest for me. Are there any password managers that you would recommend? Yeah, I do. So one I really like is called Bitwarden. It's really inexpensive and it's open source and they have great support. It has a phone app and a desktop app and it works on every browser I've tried it on. So that one's really good. And if you want the, I guess I'd call it the deluxe option, the most shiny one with the best user experience, that one would be 1Password. I highly recommend that. And that's the one I actually use personally. This is, creates a single point of failure, though, is if the password manager gets hacked, then what? That's a really good question, and it's good you're thinking that way. Using a password manager, yes, it's a single point of failure, but reusing a weak password across multiple websites is much greater security risk than having all your passwords stored in a password manager. And there are a variety of reasons for that. One is the password manager is built by companies that have teams of people working around the clock to keep it secure. They're monitoring it. They're always updating bugs. But on top of that, all quality password managers give you the option of running them just on your computer and not in the cloud either. If you really, really want to be secure, extra secure, you can just run it all from your computer or your phone and not have it sync it to the cloud. In general, it's much safer to have strong, unique passwords stored in a password manager than to have them all be short and weak and reused. All right. So all together now, what do we need to remember? Those two rules. One is make sure it's long, at least 20 characters. Make sure your password's unique. And you do that by using a password manager. So have your password manager store all your passwords. And on top of that, all password managers have a password generator feature built into so they can just generate these long, unique passwords for you. You never have to remember your passwords. Just remember the two passwords for your computer and for your password manager. And then you have access to all your accounts in a much more secure way. That was Rainatian on how, well, passwords are the worst, but a unique, strong one, or even a passphrase and a password manager can really help protect you online. You can find out more from Roy at secureyourself.org. We've covered brave new world ideas with Joanna Miller and Tan Hui Hoon on A View from the Outside, and a bit of an intro into how artificial intelligence learns. That's it for this week's edition of Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher, or at In a Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast and following us on all things digital using at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. A special thank you to our soon-to-be regular guests, Peter Eckersley and Roy Natian, and our contributor, Joanna Miller, and Evo Jansen for all our music. We'll be back with all new episodes in the new year. Until then, see you online.